This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. The Possible Youth Seminars are hitting Muncie, New York in uh, November, starting November 11th. And uh, uh, did I say that? November 17th or 18th is beginning the men's. I think the 19th or something is beginning the women's seminars in Muncie. So uh, please let your New York friends know about that. If you're watching this in New York, please join us. Who needs a seat? You guys all need seats? Just steal some seats from this banquet that's being prepared. Can you grab a few chairs? You got that? Is, that's for this guy? Okay, yeah, you take that seat. Good. Oh, wait, we got seats. Thank you so much. Mayor, can you raise the board? The reason I started the class with Will Martin, if you were scrolling down on Facebook, how long do you let a rip here run? What? Are you letting it run that much? I don't even let it run that much. By the way, the, uh, the Facebook's like, is like, is breaking me financially because what they do is once they see you every day, you're doing live feeds, they, they knock out your viewership. Meaning when I post, no one watches. Uh, no one's, sorry, Facebook makes sure it doesn't go out. And they expect me to boost it, you know, for a hundred shekel or whatever to get it out there. And then, and so I wind up, I'm paying for my own classes to like hit the world, which is really super lame because, because I'm really only boosting, I, I can only afford to boost the best class of the week or the two best class of the week. Uh, otherwise, it just doesn't get out there. And that's, that's thanks to Facebook's financial, uh, you know, bit, their, whatever their business plan is. So I'm been, I've been stuck with that for a really long time. So anyone who's willing to sponsor a class, feel free to sponsor a class and get it out there. And it really hits a lot of people. I Meaning the 100 checkup ones have hit uh, anywhere between nine to 12,000 people, which is pretty amazing to be able to speak to that many people while speaking to you. And I feel like I'm blocking you a little too much, so maybe the two of you slide over a bit. Okay, that's much better. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Is it recording me? <laughs> There's been several times where it was recording you guys, and I'm just like, so anyway, Moses said... Um, Anyway, here we go. So today we're talking, uh, this week we've kind of dedicated to spirituality and particularly uh, particularly um, uh, more alternative spirituality. Yesterday we discussed Judaism and paganism and how to deal with all the pagan stuff that goes on in all these, you know, new age, new age gift shops, you know, and, uh, and the, so we talked about that in detail yesterday. That's something worth watching, I think. And uh, today we're talking about the third eye, which is kind of the famous third eye that everyone likes to talk about. And uh, uh, the so Easterners will often put a dot on their forehead. You ever seen like Indians with a dot on their forehead representing the third eye? And the the it comes from the, it's not called an eye for nothing. There's a gland in the center of your head called the pineal gland. So the pineal gland is a really cool word because if you look at the word, pine, uh, I don't know how to spell it, uh, pine, 
How do you spell it? P-I-N-E-A-L. But in Hebrew, it means the face of God. The face of God. Like the, That's what it ultimately means. It comes from Latin, um, which came from, you know, ancient times. And it's the it's about this part of your brain that's a little gland there that's called the pineal, and it means the face of God, which is kind of interesting that the third eye is an actual physical thing that doctors today call, like brain people, call the pineal the face of God. Um, another interesting thing is it's kind of shaped like a pine cone, which is pine, which is interesting. It's called the pine, but many people call it the pineal gland. And... Uh, I like to call it the pineal gland because it's the face of God gland. But what's interesting about this gland is it's filled with visual cones, which is really strange because your eyes got the visual cones, these two eyes, but then you have this third eye that's filled with visual cones as well. Um, some say that's why, you, why you're able to see so much while you're dreaming, that there's so much visual uh, aspect to dreams that, the, that your pineal gland's being highly activated. Um, there are even those, though it hasn't been proven, that believe that the that the compound called DMT, which is way too long for me to uh, pronounce. Uh, anyone know how to pronounce that thing? Diamethyltryptamine. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Diamethyltryptamine. Yeah, you'll be in charge of that. All the names of compounds here. Um, anyway, diamethyltryptamine, which is DMT, which occurs in all organic matter. It's in every plant. It's in every human. It's... So there, there, there are those who say, and they say it with great authority, although it's not really proven. They've found it in other parts of the body, meaning the human body has it, but whether it's actually in the pineal gland is, is subject to question. They, they have not yet discovered whether it's actually there, but, but what's interesting about the, 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 that particular compound DMT is that when it meets the body, the bloodstream, and hits the pineal gland, gets turned on and hence the experience of of psychedelic hallucination meaning meaning you go into a visionary state and you're able to see you know vast 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 detail in in a another realm your eyes are closed usually someone who would be in a dmt experience either is going to be in pitch black or they're going to be with an eye shade or wherever they're going to be or a dark room and they're going to be seeing everything with, like, with their eyes closed. But they'll be seeing, you know, tremendous, tremendous amounts. And the, um, overwhelmingly, you know, like, I mean, you could die from astonishment. You ever heard of death from ast- astonishment? <laughs> Just kidding. No one dies from this. But, but it's apparently astonishing what people see. And, and uh, anyway, but, this, but what's interesting about this compound to me, one of the most interesting things about it, is that they've tested the Earth's, you know, everything organic in the Earth for this particular uh, compound. And it turns out that, the, that it occurs more in vegetation than it does in animals and humans. Human, animals have it too, we, we have it. But uh, in vegetation the most. And of all the vegetation, the tree that has that compound the most is called the, um, it's called the, uh, I know the Hebrews, I'd say Shittim, it's called the, What's the English for Atse Shitim? Shitim, the Shita tree, is called the. What? Cedar? No, it's not the cedar. No, no, no it's not the cedar. It's the. Uh, it's called the. 
I'm so embarrassed to lose the name of this tree. Um, no, they're, they're like all over the, when you go down the negative, like you see them, they're kind of like scraggly looking things with a big round, big round top on it. And they're called, whatever, we're going to call it a shito, the name will come back to me soon. Um, also, uh, Troy, can you put the AC on the low setting so it's not so loud? Um, just the bottom right there. Yeah, thank you. So... I'm sure it's on the comments there, but the clip's blocking it. Do you see a comment there in the name of the tree? Uh, the w- what? Bamboo. bamboo? Hi, Rav. <laughs> Hi, Rav. Yeah, it's not bamboo. Uh, it's something that ends with Asia. Asia. Acacia. Acacia. <laughs> Thank you. Acacia tree, which has like hundreds of species. Can you Google that? Excuse me. Can you Google how many types of acacia trees there are? There's lots of them, and I think there's over 100 types of acacia. How many kinds of acacia? According to Encyclopedia Britannica, acacia, genus of about 160 species of trees and shrubs in the family. So 160. Have you guys, anyone here been to the Negev? Negev, it's got, it's a tree. It's an amazing tree. It's up all the wadis, those big canyons and stuff. It's kind of a scraggly, thin thing, and then it just fans out. It's full of thorns and stuff. That's Anyway, that's an acacia. It's one of 160 acacia trees. And it's the one that's indigenous to this area of the world. And it turns out that of all the trees in the world, the acacia tree is has the highest concentration per centimeter of this particular compound that causes visionary states. Now, of all the 160 acacia trees, guess which one wins the planet's uh, concentration contest of DMT. Our acacia trees from this region are the ones that win the highest concentration. So, on the planet Earth, the thing that has the, the organic species that has the most concentration is the Middle Eastern acacia tree. Well, guess what? That acacia tree is what houses the tablets that is the ark of the covenant is made out of that particular acacia tree so are all the other vessels so the book of like the prophetic moment of history the greatest prophetic moment in history which is represented by the tablets as well as the very first torah scroll that moses ever wrote which was put inside that ark is made of the um, the molecule that has the strongest influence over your visionary states in uh, of anything on the planet so now what is that supposed to mean i have no idea what that means but but i looked online and saw a couple of cool websites talking all about it that's why i know about it because i googled it and the so but that's just an interesting fact now let's get to us uh in judaism our our Connection with it has, and there's different things that are connected with it. One of them is the law of tefillin. Tefillin is, you know, these black boxes that we wear, and that we put the black box over our heads, and we have to have it above our hairline. When you're wearing tefillin, it's actually good to check your hairline once in a while, just to make sure the box is above the hairline. So I'll feel my hairline and just make sure the box is touching my finger. 
And once in a while, I'll feel the box got a little below my hairline, so I'll push it back up, maybe pull the knot further back over the back of the skull. The back of the skull has a bone. You guys can feel that bone. Um, that's where the knot sits. The knot sits on that bone. And then the front sits right above the hairline. And, and what's important about that law, the reason why the Torah or the law is that the tefillin has to be above that bone, above your hairline, is because then it's, it's going to ultimately rest on another really cool name, which is called the... It's not really spelled that way, but uh, I spell it that way. It's called the fountainelle. It's really called the fontanelle, but I call it the fountain of God. And so it's called the fontanelle, which is the hole right in the skull. Yeah, you, babies have it. Like when a b- newborn baby has a soft spot on its skull. So that's called the fontanelle. And uh, we all have it too. It's, it's just, in, I think it's what happens is I think your skull is in three different sections that, that uh, in birth they fold in on each other for the birth itself, for the canal, and then, and then they expand afterwards. And, and then eventually they tighten up for the protection of the brain. So we actually need to put that tefillin over that spot, which is right between the two lobes and right in this aperture in our skull to have this effect of, uh, of the tefillin over there. Now, what is the tefillin over that spot going to help? So what that helps is that you're, it's right over your cerebral cortex. And your cerebral cortex in that frontal lobe of your brain is filled with neurons. Neurons, which you have billions of, neurons are in general athe- atheists. I mean, you have billions of atheists inside your brain. Because neurons, the job of neurons is to detect things like, like sound or sight or smell or touch or, or, or taste. Um, so they handle all the physical world. So your neurons are basically atheistic. They just te- sense physicality. They're, they're doing many other things too. They're all the emotions and, and you know, fear, love, you know, and, and um, you know, other, all the other emotions are all definitely going on in the neurons. Uh, the one interesting about the neurons that's fun for all the, all the, the people involved in, in mindfulness is that the one thing the neurons don't have is um, there that there is that is not there? The one thing that's not at your neurons is you. You don't exist in your neurons. Meaning, you know how you're like listening to me right now. Are you guys listening? You all listening now? I think so. Yeah. So there's you listening to me right now. So that you. What's up? We got a couple of chairs squeezed in here. Is that your seat? Mm-hmm. Hey, you already got a seat. Just careful the cable when you walk by. So the you. That's now like aware of him walking by and, and where me talking, but you're also aware you're the one listening. Are you aware that you're a you listening to me? Are you aware of that? So that you that is listening, that's aware that it's you listening, is not anywhere in the neurons. They're, it's not even there. Meaning if we did a brain scan and we're looking for you being the one listening, all we'd see is neurons firing or not firing, firing or not firing. They're just ones and zeros, billions of them, which, in other words, the neurons are binary. They're, they're only receiving digital, digital code. You know, they only receive information. And, but they report that information to a viewing conscious subject. That viewing conscious subject is, is actually who you are. 
but you're not in the neurons. So if we did an MRI of your neurons, we would never find you. You would not be in there. You're not, there's no I in an MRI. There's, there would only be the physicality of the brain. Uh, what's important about that is that you were all hijacked. Until I started talking about this, you were in the middle of being hijacked by your brain. And you can imagine, like, no one wants to be hijacked. I mean, if you were driving a car, you know, in South Africa, which seems to be the only place where people do this, but you, you would not want to get hijacked. If you were an airplane, you wouldn't want to get hijacked. And, but at least the good part about getting hijacked in an airplane is you know you've been hijacked when your plane suddenly makes a U-turn, you know, like over the Pacific or the Atlantic, you know, you know you've been hijacked. Um, the scary part of the, the, your brain hijacking you is that, is that you don't know it. And that's why you have so many problems, no offense, is <laughs> because, because the, the, the you that your neurons, the you that your neurons want you to think you are, meaning what your neurons want you to think you are, they love drama. They just love drama. And so, and so what happens is you're, they just turn things dramatic quickly. You know, it's like full drama queen. And that's whether you're a man or a woman. You just love the drama of it all. And, and there's nothing like having something to complain about. But when you, when you take your life back from those thoughts, from the neurons, and you're actually like viewing the neurons like a remote viewer of your neurons, you're seeing, you're seeing your neurons from the side, which I just basically made you all do, because you can't possibly think about your neurons, and your neurons are going to try to hijack you while you're looking at them. You know, it's like getting your hand caught in a cookie jar. You know, your neurons, I mean, even right now, if you listen, you know, you'll hear some like you'll hear more silence now than probably you've ever heard in your life i'll give you an example troy do you mind uh shutting off the ac for a sec okay on but right when i count to three okay when i when i say the number one you hit it off and then at four what we're all going to do is snap our fingers so everyone get your snappers ready everyone ready practice snapping get, get your snappers warmed up who's this lady snappers snappers everyone get your snappers ready okay um, four, we're going to snap our fingers. And you guys watching this live or whenever you wake up are going to watch this. So, so you're going to count up from one? Yeah, but one, you're already going to shut that baby off because it takes a second to go off. So when we snap, it should be off by then. Okay? Don't forget to snap. And also, everyone be totally quiet. So maybe after we snap, take a breath and hold it for a second. Okay, you ready? Here we go. You ready? What's going on with this girl? Okay? <laughs> okay, here we go. One... Two, three, four. Now your neurons would be pretty crazy to speak up right now. So they're just like, everybody shut up, please. And all your neurons are just like, We'll wait till they forget. And then we'll go back to telling them everything that's wrong with their lives. Oh, and, and of course, how to fix it. And at what cost. But it's worth it. Especially being single. Oh, that's terrible. The only thing worse than being single is being married. 
But God forbid to be single. See, they still don't talk. The neurons are just being quiet right now. And, and that's perfect, because their job is just to let you know that there's still Muslims in Israel. <laughs> and just to take note of that, and not go into your whole thing of like, why? The prayer service ended. It's just someone's on his foot now. (laughs) Guy's got some lungs. He's not smoking no narguilas, man. A long note. This is his cousin. And the first guy's now got bruised ribs. <laughs> anyway, so so when the neurons shut up, you can put it back in there. When the neurons shut up, like, all the drama's over. There's no more drama. There's just presence. You guys are lucky I didn't make you all stand up and stare at the person across from you. silently for 20 minutes and then hug for another 10 you're lucky but that's what would happen you just freak out on the person across and sitting next to you and you just be like you are just the most amazing person I've ever seen and then you'd hug crying at how had you met this person sitting across from you on a bus, you know, those really uncomfortable, awkward seats where they're like across from you and you're just, your knees are just a little too close. And, and you're just like, the only way to deal with this is I'm going to kind of sum them up. I'm just going to label it all and, and then put it in a box, put a ribbon on it and put it on the shelf till I get off at my station. That's why you'd be crying while you hugged them because you'd be thinking, wow, like, I had so many judgments and they're all gone when my mind quieted. I got present to the human person, this human being that's across from me. You can get good at this to the point where you become a compassionate person, patient and caring to no matter who they are. In fact, I've had people who are some of the biggest nudniks I've ever met in my life who think they somehow get a seat at my Shabbos table whenever they feel like it. And my kids are just like, get rid of that guy. And they see I'm just like, kind of enjoying him. (laughs) No, I mean, I wish he'd shower more often. For sure, I was, like, overly present to the odor. (laughs) 
Anyway, so the tefillin go over the neurons because the neurons are super dangerous. Super dangerous. I mean, think about how bad your neurons could get. For example, they could make you sin. I mean, have, has anyone in this room ever done anything wrong? You know, the answer is all of us have. And the reason we have is because we got hijacked by the neurons. When you're present, like really in your space, in the zone, you're, you're not like thinking, oh, what could I do wrong right now? That's just not the thought. You know, it's more like, how could I help somebody out here? How could I be of how could I be of service in the world? How can how could I contribute in some way? Like that's more where you'd be. But when the neurons hijack you and start telling you how much you're lacking everything, you know, you know, and all it takes is females. Like females are the worst with this, you know. Like they're they're just lacking everything. You know, like every billboard, like you lack good looks, you lack proper, you know, ideal body weight, like like you're you lack, you know, nice hair, like everything you lack. And, and you also lack proper clothes and you lack uh, love in your life. And, and of course, guys who are like really creepy know that you're feeling this way. That's why if any guy ever starts sharing words about how special he thinks you are, you watch every muscle on his eyes and his facial muscles, his cheeks, everything. Watch his eyes, see where they go, and ask him how many people he said that to. And watch him start to freak. Because <laughs> they know that this neuron hijacking is, uh, is mostly going to talk about what you're missing and until it can just put you into a total tailspin where even like you know think about like the famous Woody Allen line he's what do you say I would never marry someone who would want to marry me <laughs> think of it if you're in a total state of lack and someone wants you <laughs> you know it's like imagine you're in, I mean just let's just move it to retail like you're in a store and like this this item's pretty cool. This one's pretty stylish. This one's pretty good. This one lacks everything. Oh, I'll take that one. <laughs> no one goes shopping for something that lacks everything, you know? But, but so, you know, it's, it's just so obvious that any person who, like, remotely likes you is someone you should run for your life from, you know? Just run for your life, you know? Until you are, like, totally whole, and so amazing and just like in your zone and like full of energy and power. And then, I don't mean power like ego power, I mean power like your, your soul's connected and turned on. And then someone likes you? So then maybe there's something to talk about. But if you're in a state of lack and someone's interested in you, that guy needs a cold shower. But how many girls, how many girls would you say of girls, all of them, like if you've averaged them all up over the globe, how many girls would fall for that slime bag? How many girls would fall for it? And he's just buttering her up, you know, buttering her up. How many girls would fall into that one? Of the, what would you say, like 90% probably, 90%? And it wouldn't even matter if she was observant. You know, probably 90%. Obviously, if she's observant enough that she wouldn't ever meet a guy, so then that'd be 
she wouldn't be in that percentile, which is really wonderful to raise daughters that are, that don't interact with men at all, which is uh, that's what I opted for, and so that's like really much better um, to take them out of the out of that realm of you could almost call it persecution. You know? So, but but how many girls? How many of those ninety percent of those girls are happy to be persecuted? You know. Obviously, this isn't going to be very popular in the Me Too world. This class. But uh, you know, it's it's not only that, but but when you're in that power zone, when you're in that like like you really are are running on all pistons and you're really doing amazing. You know what that does for, 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 you know what that does? It sends out vibrational energy to hunters to go hunt somebody else. Cause, cause there's, there's no one weak here to like make you think that you're special. Yeah. Oh, I'm just playing with this way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. And and the but the worst thing about all of that is that men are conquerors. Men were conquerors. We don't need them. We don't need them. Whether you men are men were you don't need them. Men were are and will be conquerors because that's the nature of men. You're not going to change the male society from conquering they conquer and you know what young lady when you get married i hate to tell you this but the sad truth is you've been conquered and 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 i'll tell you something else i'll 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 tell you something else if you're lucky your conqueror will only go conquer the 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 um the financial world and not other people so, they, but what men do is once they've conquered, they're out there like, they got to go like mark every lamppost they walk by. You know, they're like dogs. You know, they're, they're just, they're just going to try to make their mark. And you're like, like, make your mark at home, please. And, and they're like, did that already. You know, he, he already put a check on that box. Yeah. yeah. Marriage. No, no, not very enticing, but, but, but. But it is the arena. It is the arena where life plays out. Sadly, because it's rough. But that's where everything plays out is in marriage. And you gotta play it out, right? You gotta play it out. You're gonna have to play it out in that in that arena. So your job is to just be the smartest the wisest, shouldn't you smart? Wisest wife ever that he never feels like like it's better outside the home. And that's not easy. It's not easy. You know, men, when they're having all their fun out there, like conquering, they like to come home late. They like to come home late. And the, the wise woman, the wise woman just like keeps her mouth shut and lets him know in all kinds of really cool ways, really cool creative ways, why coming home on time or even early is the way to go. But the dumb woman nails him right at the door. And you meaning he's just walking into the threshold and she's like, Where the hell have you been? You know, so he came home at eight instead of seven and she's like, Where the hell have you been? And then uh, 
But if she says that to him at the doorway, he's going to be coming home at 9 tomorrow. And if she does it at 9, he'll be home at 10. And if she does it to him at 10, he's going to be calling her from Vegas. <laughs> so, anyway, so you're going to have to... You're going to have to play the game really, really well of how to make sure home is, home is safe and, but, but, but awesome because, because that's, that's the nature of men, you know, there. And by the way, if you don't let them do that, you're going to have a depressed husband and that's no fun either. And he'll blame you deep in his heart for not letting him go have a meaningful life. Because women's lives are meaningful. Your life will be meaningful naturally. Ladies, it's harder to pay attention when you're talking. Your lives are going to be meaningful naturally. You're women. Women have naturally meaningful lives unless they've been duped by the millennial, you know, you know, egalitarian, liberal garbage. They will then, they will live, if they get caught up in that, then they will be, they'll have just as much meaninglessness as the men. But if they stay more true to themselves, they will have deeply meaningful lives. Men, on the other hand, have extreme meaninglessness issues. Extreme meaningless issues. Which I don't know why women are suddenly competing for them. That men have meaningless issues? So men who have Torah don't have meaninglessness issues? So there are, there are a lot of men who go to Kolel and like somehow like neuter that part of themselves? Oh. Now, if you're not going Kolel, men want to conquer. If you're going Kolel, they don't want to conquer. But I'll tell you this much. I just got off the phone with a woman about 76 years old crying her eyes out. Like, I mean, it was like my earphones were getting wet. From listening to this lady cry who... Whose, whose husband was, had neutered himself from the manhood stuff, from, uh, from, from their marriage, learned, tzaddik, davening, learning, comes home at night wondering if he davened or learned well enough. And he did this, they did this for years while she worked. And, you know, now they're in their mid to late 70s. He's late 70s, she's mid 70s. I'm not going to tell you what kind of crash and burn that setup was, but it, it's really bad. And um, and the so so it's none of this is a good setup. Not neither the left wing liberal nor the Kolel setup, unless of course he's an Ilui. If he's an Ilui, so for the last two thousand years, Ilui means a, a genius in Torah. For the last two thousand years, we always support a man in learning full-time for his whole life if he's a genius in Torah. And he becomes the rabbi of like a region or a community or, or a shul or whatever. He, uh, we always support that guy. That guy should stay and learn. But the, uh, when, the, when the Chazanis set up the Kolo system, he said it would be for two generations because what happened was post-war and all these Jews were moving into Israel and Israel was being run by people who were against the prophetic tradition 
of Israel. I mean, they were against the tribal traditions. And they created the state of Israel. Now you had all these Jews coming out of the Holocaust, moving into Israel, who still had some remnant of Judaism, you know, if not a lot, but, but they were coming in with that Judaism. So they said, better than men should go to the army and work, they should sit and learn Torah and try to save Torah from the, this overriding tidal wave of Western culture that had swept away what were called the maskilim, the, the uh, enlightenment Jewish intellectuals who dropped Judaism. And by the way, this happened over 100 years before the state of Israel was even formed. So, meaning the state of Israel was the new kid on the block to this whole issue that has now been going on for about 230 years which is the fight between keeping Torah or becoming part of the Western Asav wave. And, but the thing is, the state of Israel was formed by the Westerners. At the, and and they were very specifically not part of the prophetic tradition, which is really weird because it's like the most messianic thing you can do is have our exiles come back to Israel. And what's more messianic and prophetic than the Jews coming back to Israel? Which is why they kind of use those themes and those icons, and you know, and the the Magen David, and the you know the the Jewish flag is is really tchelas. Think about it. If anyone here wearing tchelas, you got to can you come up here for a second. So if you look at his tchelas, you'll see. Oh, you go for a oney. Oh, you got a two. You good. Good. Thank you very much. So if you look at his tchelas, which I'll set up the way the Israeli flag is. So there's a lot of people don't know that they were using all these messianic icons even though they're anti-prophecy. But what you'll see here is uh, is the... Um, <laughs> keeps falling out. <laughs> Sorry. It's all good. Sorry, everybody. Trying to create the Israeli flag here. Trying to do it on this here you go. Well, it's not exact, but yeah. I didn't get it perfect. But follow me. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, what you get here is what you get here is the Israeli flag, and all they did was take the t- the tzitzis, the tchelas of the tzitzis, which are a fully messianic thing. I mean, thank you. The um, let's hear it from my lovely assistant. So. The fact that they found this blue dye, which is not called royal blue for nothing. It's like royalty. It's Jacob and Asaph. One's going to rule, the other one's going to fall. And we lost that thread. And when Asaph, which is Rome, Edom, destroyed the base of Migdash, one of our sages said that no one dared wear tehelas. No one dared wear royal blue while the, while the Asaph was in power. No Jew would dare wear royal blue on anything and so thank you and so we lost should have put on snooze so (laughs) so we lost our we lost the thread and we didn't even know how to make it people are like guessing you want to hear something amazing that a Rebbe actually Rebbe Nachman I think yeah Rebbe Nachman predicted the year they would find it they didn't find it that year but they tried to. They tried to. And that's the Radziner blue thread where they tried to. That's the cheap blue thread. You got the real deal over there. So, yeah, that's the real stuff. 
and the uh, and then later they found it. But it, it, in a way, though, that year and all the work they did on it caused the search to really hit. And now they've already found, like they've already found ruins of factories used of the snails in northern Israel, Lebanon border, where they found the factories of the snails that they actually got the dye from. And we, we now have this dye, which is, which is amazing. And it's part of the Messianic era. And they put it in the flag and putting this highly Kabbalistic and also very fractally um, psychedelic um, Magin David, which is the Jewish star, which is... It, there's a lot to know about that star. That star is a super perfect... Uh, it's a super perfect structure that is part of the... It is part of the mystical level of, of the most esoteric realities is the Magin David. Anyway, they pop that right in the flag. They use menorahs and all this stuff. But they... Anyway, so the, they created the Kolil system to protect the Jews from from the Jews, <laughs> protect the Jews from the, from the anti-prophecy camp called the State of Israel. Um, it's still going on, like the war is still happening. But what happened was the, uh, they kept going, meaning the Kola life became a culture instead of an uh, emergency response. Like the Chazanish said, it can't last more than two generations because it's too big a liability on the state. And on, I don't think you meant to say that, but maybe you were saying, why did they continue with the Kolo system? I, I can't answer that, um, especially not in the few minutes left of the class. I don't even know why we're talking about this. Does anyone know why we're talking about this? We were talking about women and, oh, Kolo. Kolo's like the, the Haredi feminist movement, you know. Anyway... Um, the reason I'm a little outspoken about it, and I know I should be more careful because, like, I don't want to, like, upset, you know, Haredi people. And I also am part of the Haredi community. But the reason that I'm so, the reason I'm so outspoken about it is because I counsel people. I mean, I can't tell you how many marriages and marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage, after marriage where so many times the issue was a role reversal because he forgot to stop going to Kolel after meeting the guy. Some guys I look at, I'm like, he's two years. I look at another guy, he's like, he's a little smarter, and he's three years in Kolel. And I look at another guy, and I'm like, he's six months in Kolel. No, I really think that no one should learn, even if the guy's not really very Torah. Uh, he's not going to be very effective in Torah. I don't think any guy getting married today should learn less than a year after marriage. Um, but you see a guy, you know, two years, three years, if he wants to be a rabbi, five years. But go be a rabbi now. Like, go make a difference, you know. And the, uh, anyway, but of all these couple after couple after couple after couple, they, they, can't, they can't even smell each other. They're so upset. They can't even look at each other. And they're, they're just, and it's all, always boils down to role reversals. The female is the male, and the male is the female. And which should work because generally females like males, and males like females, and so why can't she be the male and he be the female? And did I say he be the male? Sorry, why can't she be the male and he be the female? And the answer is it is kind of fun, and especially because because any woman who wasn't raised in Mayor Sharm is probably half feminist herself anyway. So so it is kind of fun to be the boss of your family, you know, and pay all the bills and. 
do all the work and like you know you're like rocking you know with your with your nice shaitl and and fancy clothing you know and meanwhile your your pale kolo husband pasty faced kolo husband is you know it's wonderful but you know, it's really cute, but what happens is it ultimately becomes a role reversal. And and uh, eventually, uh, women get tired of it. This is why so many women in very high-powered positions in the professional world, like they've hit partner in law firm, and then, like, the next day, they're gone. They're gone. Because they realize at about 30 years old that they will not have a life. They're never going to be married, they're never going to be mothers, they're never going to be, I mean, they will not have a life. And so here this, they work their way up and they were absolute insane workaholics and they, they sacrificed everything for it. And then something hits in their thirties and they're just like, I'm out. I'm out. If I don't stop now, I will never have a life. And all the meaning God put in me for like coddling and creating and, and, and nurturing and making sure this world doesn't just completely unravel. All that that God gave me as a woman is about to be lost. So, so she's out. And the same thing happens in the Torah world where the man's in a full-time learning for a long period of time is she's out. But she's, but, but she's a good observant lady. So she's not going to like jump out of everything. I mean, she's just going to kind of shut down. And, and, that, and that's, that ain't cool. That's not cool. And so, therefore, the respect of uh, all of us have to sh- all of us have to be in a in a, a world where where the man cherishes his wife and she respects her husband. He has to cherish his wife and she has to respect her man. Because the second there's no respect, there's no attraction. The second there's no attraction, there's no marriage. And so, so that's that's what we're dealing with here. And. Now, this class was supposed to be about the pineal gland, and we were on the tefillin, tefillin which sit over the neurons to impress upon the neurons the oneness of God, which the neurons don't really get. Now, why do men have to wear them? Because women get this naturally, at least if they're still in their natural state, which, of course, today I think women probably should be wearing tzitzis and tefillin. Um, not, I'm not talking about the feminist ones. I'm not talking about like the Rabbi Cindy you know, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the ones who have lost their pads as women probably could use a pair of tefillin and a pair of tzitzis just to keep them on the straight and narrow because they've kind of joined the, the male, you know, chicken with your head cut off situation. So women have a much greater connection to God than men do. And men have all these handicapped commandments like tefillin and tzitzis and, and minion, like... Like my, you think men? You think women need a minion? Men, if we don't have someone saying "Where were you?", we'll just stop coming. <laughs> we'll just stop coming. You know, that's it. The man who says, "You know what? I'm tired of all the pressure of minions. I'm just going to pray alone." That guy stops praying. Eventually, he just stops praying. Very few men will ever continue praying alone, they, unless they've got a strong feminine side. If they have a strong feminine side, they actually keep praying. Alone, but it's very. How many men are going to be that much women inside of them to keep praying? Um, women, they just pray without minion. They don't need a minion. 
You know, my house, you get up Shabbos morning. I get up Shabbos morning. Every, I have a bunch of daughters, so every corner of my house has another girl with a sitter. My wife. Everyone's praying somewhere. My boys, you can't get them out of bed with a crowbar. <laughs> like, men don't like praying. Because what is prayer? Prayer is the recognition that you... you Prayer is the recognition that you're not the source of reality, which women are cool with. They don't want to be the source of reality. They don't want to be the one talking. They don't want to be the one, like, the true nature of a woman, she doesn't want to be in front of everybody. And the, but the nature of men is just like, prayer is, is emasculating. You could be the, you could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, walk through the door of a minion in some building in Manhattan, and they're just going to be like, seven. And then this guy comes in who's like, you know, even bigger than he is financially, and they're just like, eight. Like, who are you calling eight? Do you know who you're talking to, man? So we're just numbers in a minion, you know, which is, I told you, this is why we wear the tallest, because it's got barcode on it. You know, the, the black stripes are barcode. It's humbling. All these things are there to humble the man. We strap ourselves down with leather straps. I mean, we're not into, like, weird stuff, you know. But probably every man in this room has already, like, strapped himself down with leather straps meaning he's been bound up today he's been bound up um, whereas whereas and they don't like it whereas women like we're bound to God you know like I'm bound up and that's cool I don't need external bondage whereas men need to get bound up you know by these things and women work in sevens you know and nature and everything's in sevens like the the, the um, reproductive systems in sevens. Men wrap seven wraps on their arm. For the, to, they're binding themselves with seven loops. I mean, we're getting back to the side of the feminine that's a receiver versus the masculine, which is asserter. Because men want to assert themselves, and we don't like God. And we really don't like Shabbos. Because like, you want to tell me that I'm not going to be able to make my mark for 24 hours? Can't mark lampposts for twenty four hours, and the, and the, and, and whereas women are like, oh great, you know, like, finally, you know, you know, bozo is going to put down his smartphone and like, play husband and father for twenty four hours, you know, rather than conquering the planet. What any of this has to do with the um, third eye is, is simply. <laughs> This is all a class on tefillin and putting it over the, that part of the brain, which is ultimately to wake up, wake up the, um, to get the neurons moving into a Shema Yisrael mode, to move into Hashem, a Hashem mode. And ultimately, when you climb the ladder and climb the ladder, you get to visionary states. And when you get to visionary states, your ability to manifest gets stronger like manifest things in the physical world. Your intuition gets stronger. Your ability to help others, because suddenly you become 
a bal eitza, you can sense a person and know how to how to guide them as a rebbe, and eventually you can get to a level called ruach hakodesh, which means um, divine inspiration, like Rashi had ruach hakodesh, and then if you get high enough, you can actually. I mean, today I doubt we can get there, but you get can get prophecy, which is up down, you know, coming from above instead of climbing up. You're actually getting a download from above, which is our tradition. That's why you should never be embarrassed as a Jew or feel less spiritual than anybody because you're living the prophecies. You're aligned. If you're keeping Shabbat, you're aligned with prophetic tradition. These sitzes I only know because of a prophetic book, so I'm wearing a prophetic garment. I'm part of prophecy. When I eat kosher, I'm part of prophecy. And and we're, we're a prophetic line. So the next person who complains about sending, that why you're not sending your boys to the army, you tell them that because I'm not sending a, a very sensitive and very, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, what's the word? Um, you tell them, what does it mean when you could be easily hurt? Vulnerable. Vulnerable. I'm not sensing a sensitive and vulnerable person who's completely locked in to a prophetic 3,330 year prophecy tradition. I'm not giving him over to some skinheaded commander who's still got, you know, shrimp sauce coming down his chin. That's not happening. No way. And if National Geographic, the magazine, had had any idea that anyone even wanted to put such a creature into the army, they would come to Israel and lobby the Israeli government. How dare you? How dare you think that these boys should be influenced in any other way than in the tradition of the prophetic? People, you know how much money National Geographic spends and raises for indigenous cultures? And they didn't have prophecy. <laughs> they're they're like they're like eating like frog blood and stuff, you know, and like going into hallucinatic states. And they're like, whoa, you know, like they didn't come to like humanize the planet, meaning to to uh, civilize the planet. They didn't come to like train the globe in in ethical conscience. They didn't make any difference. They sit in the jungles and trip out on their magical medicines over there. And yet everyone just thinks, like, yeah, why don't they join the army, you know? And they, they, if National Geographic had any idea what was going on, they would have, they'd be on the front lines of Israel at protests, burning trash cans. That soldiers, that is, that boys of the prophetic tribe aren't going to such a situation. Now, by the way, war, that's cool. Like, boys go to the army and, like, fight wars. Only the holiest boys fought the wars in Israel. The Torah is filled with all the laws of how to fight wars and what's going on over there. We're not against the army. We're just, we just want, we want to make sure that the influence in the army is coming from the prophecies. That all the laws and decisions making, decision making which puts our kids in a life and death situation are being filtered through the laws of war that are from the prophecy, the Torah. We have lots and lots and lots of laws surrounding war. And and certainly there are commanders, and certainly the commanders in chief of the army shall be of the highest caliber of Torah knowledge and Yerat Shemayim and and reverence of God, which is how life always was. But otherwise, 
those boys, and by the way, I'm not speaking about Dati Louis Ming kids who are raised totally integrated. Dati Louis Ming kids should go fight in the army for sure. I'm saying if you're willing to preserve your kid in the prophetic tradition with no compromise, the way my kids are raised, zero compromise for Westernism. If you're willing to raise your kids that way, and you did succeed to raise your kids that way, you're not throwing them into, you're not throwing them to the walls of Westernism. That's totally out of the question. You want to start, let them start the army when they're 25, they're married, they already got a couple of kids, you know, they're more or less set up, they're already teaching their kids, you know, olive base and stuff, and, you know, the next generation, you know what I mean? They're like, they're in, and then they're going to go be told what to do by the guy with the shrimp sauce coming off his chin, I'm sure they'll do fine. I'm sure they're going to do fine. But not an 18-year-old kid. And, uh, but uh, by the way, I'm not, and, and if one chooses to go, you know, okay, you know, like, I'm not against that at all. If one of them chooses to go, or he's just not getting any traction in the observant world, or he's been hurt in the observant world, and likely, you know, really could crash hard. Maybe the army is probably the best thing for him, that particular Haredi young man. You know, the army might be his last chance. Or he's an absolute bum. Or he's from a, or he's from a broken home. And this guy's going to wind up being a villain to society. Well, get him in the army. Even if he's the most Yiddish-speaking Haredi kid ever, let him go to the army and let them make a mensch out of him. And come what may spiritually for those kids. So there's nothing against it. But what I do bless us all is to get to a point where our army is led in a way that's in consonance, in, in alignment with the prophetic tradition. Amen. Shalom, everybody. Tzalacha. <laughs> What's that? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.